Hello and welcome to episode number 30 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to look at one each of Bach's great sonatas and partitas for solo violin. But before we do, I'd like to mention again, for those interested in late 18th and early 19th century music, and particularly the music of Beethoven, you might want to check out The Beethoven Files, a recently launched podcast series, something of a companion to this one, available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and presumably other places in the future. But for now, on to Bach's works for solo violin. It's usually assumed that they were composed when Bach was the court organist and concertmaster at the court of Curtin, but some may well have been begun earlier when Bach was still at Weimar. As with his solo cello suites, there were some antecedents of which Bach was almost certainly well aware, certainly the works of Johann Paul von Festhoff, whose suite for solo violin dates from the early 1680s, although not published until ten years later and some commentators have pointed to Johann Georg Piesendel's 1716 Sonata for Solo Violin as a possible inspiration, if not a model, for Bach's works. And of course, in an earlier episode, we heard a work for unaccompanied violin by Telemann, although it did not begin to approach Bach's in terms of the complexity of implied counterpoint or the use of multiple stops on the instrument. We'll start with number one in G minor, BWV 1001, which, being in the Sonata da Chiesa style, begins with a serious and perhaps even grave adagio. But while there's no question that it's a serious beginning, it's not completely somber. Too many overt displays of passionate intensity for that. But while passion in a musical sense may sometimes boil down to musical style, particularly the nature of the melody harmony, and the use and intensity of non-harmonic tones, it also has quite a bit to do with the performer's approach. Scholars are not in agreement as to what extent a free rubato, the sort of rubato that seems almost automatically to render a work more emotional-sounding, to what extent that sort of rubato existed in the German performing tradition of Bach's time or at least as it would be applied to an opening adagio in a sonata da chiesa or church sonata. But it is clear that performances of these solo sonatas and partitas in more recent decades have tended, at least at times, to be very free indeed, surging ahead to points of repose, pausing over particularly graphic dissonances, and in general subscribing to a very free approach to realizing rhythmic figures and the precision of the pulse. This is not to suggest that performers are always indulging in their own self-generated passion. It's highly probable that most performers settle on their approach after thoroughly analyzing the piece in question and coming to the conclusion that certain rhythmic and dynamic flexibilities are positively required by the music. Of course, different performers will come to different conclusions about exactly what these flexibilities will consist of and where they will be applied, and that's one of the things that makes one performance different from another. And, unlike some opening movements for works employing the Sonata da Chiesa form, this movement does have an improvisatory quality about it, and Bach's typical motivic manipulations here will be a little more difficult to follow than usual. Let's hear just the first four measures. <laughs> 
We begin, not surprisingly, with a bold, quadruple-stop affirmation of the tonic G minor chord. Although all four notes are written on beat one, it's the nature of a string instrument like the violin and the modern bow that the notes will not all be played at the same time, but rather be arpeggiated up from the bottom very quickly. So the first note we'll hear is the root of the chord, the G, and the last note we'll hear in this quick arpeggiation is the high G, and it is from that note that the first melodic phrase will stem. And that phrase will consist of a fast-moving, fast relative to the tempo anyway, scale-wise descent down the G minor scale in 30-second notes. Not exactly straight down the scale, not all the way. Right before the descending scale line reaches the G on the bottom, the second-to-last note in the scale flips back up to its upper neighbor before then skipping down to the bottom of the scale. Bach does that, or something like that, fairly frequently in this movement. He sets up a sweeping scale line, either descending, as in this case, or ascending, but right before that line reaches its conclusion, or what you might expect the conclusion to be, one of the notes at the end of that line breaks the pattern by skipping or moving in the opposite direction. But back to the first measure. When our descending scale line ends on the lower G, two things become immediately apparent. That G on which he arrives may be heard as the main melodic note at this point, but it is no longer the highest note in the texture. It is now sandwiched between two other notes and, briefly, actually serves as a dissonance. Meanwhile, on the fourth beat of that first measure, the other voices drop out and the main melodic line begins a swirling ascent of the scale that serves to balance the descending line heard earlier in the measure. This is more evidence of something we've learned in earlier episodes, particularly number 15 on Bach's unaccompanied cello suites, and that is, for Bach and many other composers, the melody migrates. It may start in the top voice, but then show up in the middle or lower part. And then, a second or two later, it may be the only voice in the texture. But of course, it's also true that there are passages, and we encountered this also in the unaccompanied cello suites, where Bach provides two or more voices consistently for several measures at a time. But he doesn't do that very much in this first movement. For much of it, the melody consists of a single unaccompanied line, punctuated at key harmonic points by the addition of multiple stops. In measure two, which begins on the dominant, Bach introduces a rhythmically distinctive new motive, starting with a triple stop chord, which is then repeated with a trill added in a sort of free inversion before landing back on the tonic chord. But then he sets off in a new direction, seemingly heading toward a new tonal area, E flat. But it soon turns out to be just a tease, and before you know it, we hear another dominant tonic cadence locking us back into G minor. Usually when talking about a composition by Bach, it's reasonably easy to pick out the main motivic ideas and try to follow what he does with them. But perhaps because of the semi-improvisatory nature of the first movement, it's more difficult to do that here. There is one motive in measure three where Bach briefly seems to be setting up E-flat to be the new tonic that does later recur in almost the exact same form, so I'll point that one out in a simplified version. There are a number of other motives which recur in a somewhat similar but less exact form. And of course, there are scale fragments, sometimes sweeping directly up or down, 
sometimes undulating and decorated with trills, often combining 32nd and 64th notes within the same pattern. But the rhythmic activity slows down just a little bit in the next few measures. I'm going to play another excerpt from bar 6, starting on the second beat through the beginning of bar 9. After a descending 32nd note scale passage, we encounter a series of mostly 16th note arpeggio figures in which, again, at least two and often three different melodic lines in three different layers are clearly implied, if not literally expressed. We've actually moved to the key of D minor by this point, and the tonality is clear enough, despite the fact that non-harmonic tones are, as usual, in great abundance. The passage ends with a double stop on the temporary tonic of D minor. After this point, a variety of swirling and undulating scale passages, often glutted with non-harmonic tones, alternate with chordal arpeggios, some widespan, some in closer position, taking us briefly through a series of different keys, including B-flat major. We even pause with a fermata on a strident diminished seventh triple stop chord in that key, before the next arpeggiated chord forces us back toward C minor. We know that for Bach, modulating, or at least touching briefly on a series of different tonal centers, is one of the key weapons in his arsenal of expressive devices. But here, it's often difficult to follow, because the harmonies are so often complicated with non-harmonic tones, and when one resolves, another one appears elsewhere in the texture to take its place. But eventually, the highly decorated flow of scale fragments and arpeggios coalesce to bring us back to G minor where we conclude with another four-part multiple stop on the tonic. Here are the last few measures. If the first movement seems somewhat improvisatory and just slightly amorphous, the second seems relatively precise and hard-edged. It's a fugue, which is not unusual for the second movement in the Sonata da Chiesa style, but fugues written for solo string instruments are never easy to manage. Let's hear the first six measures.
the subject, which sits on its first note for four repetitions before going on to a more rhythmically active descent down the scale, is barely over a measure long. It comes in on D, the fifth scale degree in G minor. The first imitative answer comes in the second measure a fifth lower. The next comes up an octave from that in measure three, and the last comes back on D halfway through the fourth measure. All of that is pretty straightforward, but tracing the contrasubjects, those melodic lines that are played against the imitative answers, is another matter. It was clear enough from the first movement that Bach is perfectly comfortable writing multiple stops for the instruments and expects a confident performer to be able to negotiate them effectively. But it is no easy matter when double stops and triple stops are so frequently demanded. And it is unrealistic to think that a violinist's multiple stops are going to yield smooth or complex counter-melodies to the fugal answers. In this case, as the first answer enters in the second bar, Bach employs a double-stop eighth note on the beat above the answer to provide harmonic support. In the third measure, when the second answer moves up an octave, Bach employs triple stops. The melody, the second fugal answer, is on the top, and Bach provides two voices beneath it, again eighth notes on the beat, but in this case, the added voice underneath the fugal answer has itself a strong melodic identity. It's doing more than just adding harmonic support to the fugal answer. And this is not easy to do, to provide counter-melodies to the main melodic idea by way of multiple stops, counter-melodies that really have a strong melodic sense of identity. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the first episode. It's highly contrasting in content, consisting primarily of a flow of a 16th note arpeggios, which serve to break us away from the original key of G minor and move toward other tonal centers. It does, however, get interrupted about two-thirds of the way through its course for a powerful triple-stop quotation of the fugue subject, starting on the third scale degree. And that, of course, looks ahead to the next fugal exposition, which starts back in G minor with the subject entering an octave higher this time. There are some other changes as well. The counter-subject now draws from the subject itself, with key motives overlapping. And, perhaps more importantly, this second exposition doesn't move on to another contrasting episode, but to a comparatively lengthy passage in which the subject, or fragments of the subject, particularly the more rhythmically distinctive second half, is repeated, spun out, or developed, often moving through new tonal centers in the process. This rises to a climax as the violin moves higher into its range and finally incorporates complex figures involving ascending lines in thirds and sixths over a reiterated pedal. Let's hear the second exposition beginning where the violin comes in an octave higher than before, leading into the passage I just described. Thank you. 
This dramatic passage is followed by another arpeggio-based, tonally active episode, and then another exposition, which is again not simply a playing out of fugal imitation, but involves a rather free and very dramatic treatment of the subject, including even one quadruple stop variant of it in B-flat major. Another episode follows, and the final reference to the subject is again a very free one, which involves modulatory activity within it, although in the end we close on G minor and the movement comes to an end with something of an arpeggio-based and at times highly virtuosic coda, which again makes extensive use of pedal effects. By the way, violinist Rachel Barton Pine, in her series on performing Bach, featured on the YouTube Violin Channel, has made a number of insightful points regarding this movement, including the influence of Bach's fugues for organ on the writing for the violin here. She also makes a number of very good suggestions for dealing with the technical intricacies of the movement that would be of interest to any violinist. It's certainly a formidable movement, not only for the performer, but for the listener as well. There are plenty of repetitions of the basic fugal theme, but Bach demonstrates an almost unending variety of ways to deal with it, both in terms of idiomatic violinistic devices and in regard to contrapuntal and tonal variety. Bach was sufficiently pleased with the fugue subject itself that he adapted it for use in two other versions, BWV 1000 for lute and BWV 539 for organ with a different prelude. The next movement is a delightful and fully idiomatic Siciliana in B-flat major and in traditional 12-8 meter. It will come as no surprise that the motivic ideas presented in the first two measures constitute, in various guises, a great deal of the melodic and harmonic material of the movement. Let's hear just the opening. The opening motive, which you just heard, an ascending B-flat major triad presented in a traditional dotted note rhythm, is a key element here. But the descending line in sixteenths that follows it, and the subsequent ascending leap, leading to a lyrical descending phrase doubled in harmonious sixths, are almost as important. Okay, now let's hear the first two measures. As you can hear, the second measure adds some new thematic elements that also prove somewhat important. You may also have noticed that Bach is again working in multiple layers of melodic activity. The top two parts are linked rhythmically with three different motives, all beginning on the offbeat, but the third part, the lowest part, is functioning independently as it traces a more slowly moving melody down the scale. Of course, there are new motivic elements added almost continuously such as a sweeping, ascending arpeggio figure in the third measure, along with two or three others. We're going to pick up the action here in measure 9. We've modulated to G minor at this point, and Bach quotes the opening motives from the first two beats of bar 1, starting on G, the bottom of the violin's range. But it's just the first two ideas, the ascending triad presented in a dotted 8 16th eighth rhythm, followed by the descending scale fragment, which he employs in the primary melodic line. 
He then spins these two ideas out, the first always leading to the second, and with the first, sometimes abbreviated, and with the shape or interval of content, sometimes altered slightly. These two ideas in combination recur six times, starting on different scale degrees, in just the span of five measures, and touching on various tonal areas before seeming to settle down on E-flat major, at least for a while. Against this continuing development of the first two motives, and in the two upper parts of the typically three-part texture, Bach employs mostly fragments derived from beats three and four of the first measure, often harmonized, as in the original, in sixths. Here's the excerpt, starting at measure nine. As we proceed to the end of the movement, more arpeggio-based passages are introduced, but the motives I've referred to, from both the first and second measures, are continually brought back in original or varied form all the way to the conclusion. Here are the last few measures. The final movement is back in G minor, in 3-8 and marked presto. It consists of a long series of arpeggio-based and scale-based motives of various sorts in a constant flow of 16th notes, with multiple stops only occurring in the final two cadential chords of each of the two sections. But while there's a certain sameness to the flow, Bach actually exploits a series of different motives within that flow, and we're going to look at a few of them. First of all, we have the common arpeggio patterns. Let's hear just the first eight measures. As you could hear, everything moves at breakneck speed in a constant, almost perpetual motion-like flow. Bach starts on the tonic, first moves up a third, and then starts undulating downward in the next measure, in an arpeggio that never leaves the notes of the G minor tonic chord. In the two bars that follow, he ascends within the same triad, peaking at the top and then in bar 5, descending with a mostly scale-wise pattern. 
The next measure provides a slightly altered version of that ascending pattern, but now on the dominant chord. And as in bar 5, he then moves down the scale, ending up a measure later on the tonic, where we hear another ascending G minor triad. So, in the first eight bars, which go by very quickly, we heard the tonic chord, a brief dominant chord, and then back to the tonic, all clearly implied by various arpeggio patterns with a few connecting scale lines interspersed. After that, we finally introduce a new chord, a subdominant seventh, meaning the seventh chord built on the fourth degree of the G minor scale. Here, we also introduce a new descending arpeggio pattern, which is then repeated twice more each time down a step. We're then introduced to a slightly new type of pattern in measures 12 and 13. Here it is in a simplified and slowed down example. If the conventional arpeggio pattern that began the movement is idea number one, this is idea number two. Its most distinctive characteristic comes in measure 12, where the leap from the first note to the second in the pattern is quite large, an octave plus a fourth, which is then ornamented by a lower neighbor tone, before moving one step higher and then dropping down a sixth. So, a distinctive ascending leap at the beginning and a not quite so large descending leap at the end. The measure which it passes to is somewhat similar, but starts a fourth higher and lacks that dramatic opening leap. Those two measures are then repeated down a step, and after that, there's another partial repeat in the next measure, again down a step. Here it is again with that description in mind. How important an idea is this? Well, Bach uses it again in the second half of the movement, much of which revisits various ideas from the first half in a new tonal context. But he doesn't use it again after bar 16 in the first section. Instead, he turns to other new ideas. For example, from measures 25 through 29, he focuses on the following. It's quite a bit different than the previous pattern. As you heard, it moves up the scale for three notes, then leaps up a sixth, which is then decorated by a lower neighbor tone. When the figure repeats, which it does three times, the bottom three notes begin a step higher each time, while the top three notes hold their position. The phrase then concludes with a more generic ascending arpeggio pattern, which hits its peak and then curls back down slightly. As you may have noticed, this passage doesn't have a minor key sound to it, because by this point in the movement, we have moved on to the key of B-flat major. Just like the first idea I played a couple of minutes ago, this one does not reappear in the first section of the movement, but unlike that first idea, it does not reoccur in the second section either, although patterns resembling it somewhat do recur. I'm going to isolate one more pattern from the first section. It's repeated sequentially three times and has a personality all of its own. We're in D minor at this point, and this two-measure passage has various components. 
It starts in the first measure with a descending line heard as an upbeat and then makes a large ascending leap to B-flat, after which it then moves by step back down the scale. This is another classic example of Bach dividing his melody. Against the upper melodic layer, which I just described, the ear also picks up a melodic line in the lower voice, one which rises initially but then moves down by step. The entire two-measure unit is then repeated a step lower three times and is one of the most distinctive ideas in the first section. There are other repeated patterns in the first section, some of which are also repeated sequentially, but I think we've heard enough to get an idea of what Bach is doing here. Let's now hear the entire first section, which goes by a lot quicker than my examples, to get a sense of the overall continuity. The first section then repeats, and then, as suggested earlier, the second section brings back some of the same ideas heard in the first, but now starting in the key of the dominant, D major. This section does introduce a few new repeated ideas of its own. Here's one of them. This pattern, which breaks off after four measures, starts with a large ascending leap, a sixth, but then it proceeds to descend in a broken third pattern, giving it an element not heard in any of my other examples. And again, it's clearly an example of dual melodic lines. As the entire measure-long pattern descends by step, we hear both the bottom and the top lines descending together, but on two different levels. There are other such examples in the second section, but we're going to skip over those and just hear the second section in its entirety, although, as usual, without the repeat. Four very different movements, all of them powerful in their own way, add up to one of Bach's greatest works. The next piece we're going to look at is Bach's Partita Number no. 1 in B minor, BWV 1002. This is basically a suite of dances, 
beginning with the Alemand, followed by the Corrente, the Italian version of the Koran, which we've seen many times before, the Sarabande, and taking the place of the traditional gigue, a tempo di Boria, the equivalent of a French bourree with its duplimeter and single upbeat. Each of the four dances are followed by a double, basically a variation on the harmonic progression employed by the previous dance. The alemán that opens the partita in B minor in common time is a dignified, even stately piece, with dotted note rhythms in abundance. Here's an excerpt from the beginning to the start of measure 6, where we've modulated to E minor, having touched on D major earlier. The melody, which is periodically expressed in two layers and sometimes more, begins after a traditional pickup note with a solid quadruple stop B minor chord, which is followed two beats later by another multiple stop dominant chord, and two beats after that, a luxuriously dissonant submedian seventh chord, meaning a seventh chord built on the sixth scale degree. The melody is then reduced primarily to a single line for a couple of measures but the melodic lines remain strongly shaped, whether expressed as the top part of a multi-voice chord or as a single line. You may have noticed near the end of my excerpt that Bach at one point reverses the familiar dotted rhythm figure of dotted 16th 32nd, resulting in a short-long pattern, often referred to as a Lombard rhythm. This is by no means a great novelty for Bach, but he doesn't exploit that particular rhythm again in this movement, and it does catch the ear in its one occurrence. You also might have noticed right at the end of my example that, having arrived at E minor, he is already on the move again by measure's end, heading back to B minor. And he does so by introducing and leaning upon a new rhythmic figure, 16th note triplets. We'll pick it up in measure 7 and carry it through to the end of the first section of the movement. The familiar dotted note rhythms haven't disappeared as we continue through the first section, but his reliance on the new triplet figures in both triadic arpeggios and scale fragments give this second half of the first section its own personality. The second section begins with the same dotted rhythms heard in the first, in this case 
a dotted 16th followed by two 64th notes, as we begin on a rather austere minor dominant chord lacking the third. Here's a simplified example. Variants of that first motive, along with the triplet patterns I mentioned earlier, dominate in the second section of the movement. Here is the first part of that second section. Right as my excerpt ends, Bach has worked his way back to E minor, although he manages the trip somewhat differently than he did in the first section. Triplet figures continue to dominate as he works his way back to the original tonic for that final cadence, which rings out boldly with a quadruple stop. We're going to spend considerably less time talking about the double that follows. It consists of a variation in the form of a constant flow of sixteenth notes, mostly moving up and down arpeggio patterns with occasional scale-wise inserts for variety. These doubles generally stay faithful to the original harmonic background of the movement they follow, and in this case, many of the original motives are referenced as well, although the original dotted rhythms are here ignored and smoothed out into ongoing sixteenth note patterns. Here's a little of the first double. The next movement is a corrente, written in 3-4 meter. Looking at the printed page and noting that virtually the entire movement consists of single-line arpeggios with scale fragments interspersed, all in eighth notes, no rhythmic differentiation whatsoever, it would be easy to conclude that the movement is more of a technical exercise than anything else and is devoid of a distinctive melodic personality. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Here are the first 22 measures in which we move to the key of D major, although almost immediately after arriving there, we start heading back to B minor, as you'll hear at the end of my excerpt. Lack of rhythmic variety notwithstanding, Bach actually produces a very attractive melody. 
The top voice, or sometimes top two voices of the rising arpeggios, clearly emerge with the main melodic theme, which demonstrates a clear melodic contour that rises to a climax and then begins a gentle descent. But of course, that's not all that's going on. An implied contrapuntal line at the bottom of the arpeggio, in the violin's lower range, also competes for our attention. And after four bars or so, a middle line also emerges with a strong personality of its own. And is so often the case, Bach makes use of sequential repetitions of larger patterns to ensure that we experience the broad sweep as coherent and well-integrated. The second part of the first section, after my excerpt, is more insistent about moving toward F-sharp minor, but continues to use many of the patterns and sequential repetitions heard in the first part, finally coming to a cadence on F-sharp major to propel us back to B minor with a repetition or to send us onward to the second section. The second section begins on the F-sharp major chord with which the first closed off, but it reports back to the tonic of B minor pretty quickly before moving on shortly thereafter to E minor. The basic melodic material is similar to that heard in the first section, largely arpeggio-based patterns descending and ascending. One pattern in particular emerges as significant. It first occurred in bars 6 through 8 in the first section, and you heard it in my previous example. Now, in the second section, it takes on even more importance. Here is a slowed-down example of it. The pattern is a distinctive one. A falling half-step in the upper range of the violin is echoed immediately by a descending step in the lower range. The pattern is then immediately repeated down a step. Then, after a briefly intervening widely spaced arpeggio figure, a similar motive is repeated again. It's not only a clearly recognizable signpost, but it also serves to bring about a quick of temporary shift in the tonal center, which starts in E minor, moves in the direction of A minor, and just as quickly returns to E minor. And this same figure is heard several times more in the second section. It may almost be said to dominate. Here is the second section. Again, I'm going to spend relatively little time with the double, which is marked presto and usually goes by at blazing speed. 
It again respects to a great extent the harmonic framework of the previous movement, focusing initially more on rapid scale lines and later on arpeggios. It does introduce some new descending figuration patterns based on wide-spanned arpeggios. Here is an excerpt. The Sarabande that follows in the traditional 3-4 meter carries with it the traditional elegance of the style, but also quite a bit of passionate intensity. The phrase structure is quite clear and symmetrical, displaying a variety of rhythmic values and combinations. In the first section, only eight bars long, the phrases begin with powerful and sonorous multiple stops, with the texture thinning out a bit as the phrase progresses but we're always hearing at least two separate and distinctive layers. As usual, the first section ends on a dominant chord, although this one lacks the third of that chord. Many of the ideas heard in the first section make a reappearance in the second, but always transformed in accordance with their new context. We begin the section with three broad-span triple-stop chords extending the dominant before passing to a wide-arching ascending arpeggio, an idea not found in the first section. The next two bars represent a variant of the first two bars of the first section, adjusted for the new tonal situation. This time we're heading for A major. Quadruple stop chords make a return here, but they are even more complex than before, with top and bottom layers moving in contrary motion, not the easiest technique to pull off. As is so often the case, the opening bars of the second section are relatively unstable, tonally speaking. After arriving at A major, we almost immediately head toward E minor, or Bach cadences at about the midpoint of the section. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the second section up to the cadence on E minor. You may have noticed that included among the new ideas Bach introduces in the second section is one involving large ascending leaps to a dissonance, although that dissonance is quickly resolved by step. But Bach also reuses the simplest of motives from the first section, one that we hardly would have noticed when we first heard it in measure six, a simple three-note ascending scale line exploiting the common rhythm of dotted quarter, eighth quarter. In the second part of the second section, Bach re-employs this motive three times, although always in a different harmonic context. But we do naturally return to the original tonic of B minor as we enter the final measures of the movement, 
Here, the level of rhythmic activity picks up a bit, the fullness of the multiple stop sonorities increase, and we hear a particularly impressive sequential repetition with the repeated phrase not only moving up a step, but cleverly ornamented to increase the level of momentum. Here is the second half of the second section. The double proceeds in a lilting 6-8 meter, relying extensively on arpeggios to articulate much of the chord progression heard in the sarabande. But a few distinctive motives do appear, including one featuring a large ascending leap, followed usually by a descending step. This motive, often repeated sequentially, occurs in six of the eight measures which make up the first section of the movement. My example comes from bars 5 and 6, where the motive is heard three times in close proximity. Of course, it's just another example of Bach's melody proceeding on two levels at once, one expressed in the lowest voice and the other in the top voice. Here's the entire eight-measure first section without the repeat. The next movement, still in B minor and in duple meter, is in the style of a French bourrée. Like most bourrées, it begins with a single upbeat and demonstrates a fairly simple but quite distinctive melodic line in the top voice, sturdily accompanied and accented by periodic quadruple stops. The first section at 20 bars is, as usual, shorter than the second. As you could hear, the first section is notable for its rhythmic persistence, especially its repeated use of the simple but forceful pattern of a quarter note followed by two eighths. The quarter note generally appears on the strong beats and the eighths on the following weak beats, but Bach sometimes reverses the pattern in the second part of the section in a new motive that also includes large ascending leaps which return immediately to the same note. Here the idea is repeated twice, the second time down a step. But in the second section of the movement, that motive, or a clearly recognizable variant of it, plays a much bigger role. 
Bach again employs a minimum of two strong melodic lines simultaneously in this section, with the bottom voice showing particular strength in the final measures as it descends powerfully against the repeated rhythmic pattern playing out in a series of large leaps in the upper voice. He then breaks the pattern with an elegant melismatic flow of eighth notes just before coming to a cadence on D major. Here are the opening bars of the second section. At the end of my excerpt, you could hear the key pulling toward E minor, although cleverly interrupted by a deceptive cadence on its journey. And you could also hear how effective Bach's switch from the familiar dactylic pattern of long short short, quarter eighth eighth, to its reverse, eighth eighth quarter, in connection with that deceptive cadence. As the second section proceeds, we hear some familiar ideas, but, as I suggested earlier, some of those which played a relatively minor role earlier now take on great importance, albeit in varied form. Notably, the leaping motives I referenced in the first section, which are often heard here repeated sequentially. Here is the remainder of the second section without the repeat beginning after the cadence on E minor where my previous excerpt concluded. You may have noticed that the idea of the flowing, single-line melisma that appeared in the final measures of the first section returns here and is extended considerably, leading at times into broad-spanned arpeggio figures. But the original rhythmic patterns from the opening measures of the first section also return, along with some of those first section leaving motives that went with them. And in the last four measures, the original four measures that began the movement are recapitulated virtually intact. Of course, the movement is followed by the familiar double, which again follows the original harmonic progression for the most part, while making occasional references to the original melodic motives themselves, particularly in the second section. Here's just a little bit of the final double.
We've looked at two pieces, one a sonata, the other a partita for the solo violin, both of them great works. We'll look at a couple more of them in the next episode.